Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. You don't concentrate on risks. You concentrate on results. No risk is too great to prevent the necessary job from getting done. This is a quote from the American Air Force and test pilot Chuck Yeager, who in 1947 became the first person to break the sound barrier. I thought of his words after having the opportunity to hear from our guest today, as he described that failure isn't fatal in his quest to take Australian technology global. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite, world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blender Partners, Executive Search and Board Advisory Firm. In this episode with Rob Newman, Managing Director and Chief Executive of Nearmap, we learn from an entrepreneur who has a passion for technology, business and Australia. He feels that in Australia, we haven't created a culture and a belief that we can be successful in technology. He talks of his personal experiences, the wins, the challenges, and how to build the appropriate team and create the beachhead to penetrate global markets. Finally, he gives one piece of advice to government. Get out of the way. So sit back and enjoy this highly engaging discussion. Failure isn't fatal with Rob Newman. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Greg. Great to be here. Great background. Is it fair to say you're the ultimate entrepreneur? I wouldn't say I'm the ultimate entrepreneur, but I guess it's deep in my DNA. So I grew up in a family where my great-grandfather, my father, my grandfather, my brothers were all in business. Actually, they're all in banking and finance, and one of my brothers is a CFO. And I started out with a passion for computers. Remember, this is back in the late 70s, early 80s, when we were first getting kind of computers. So I was fascinated by that. So I was almost the black sheep in the family. Were you playing Pac-Man in those days, were you? Uh, well, I think it was a Commodore 64. <laughs> I don't know who knows what that is, but anyway. So, yeah, it's uh, not the car going down the street, that's yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, it's not the car going down the street. But anyway, yeah, I used to play those games on, and it was fascinating, right? I was fascinated by technology but grew up in a family where my father encouraged me in business. I can tell you a little story about that later, actually. So I had this passion that kind of drew me in two ways. I loved business, but at the same time I loved technology. So I actually started my first company while I was still at university with my supervisor and I had this dream as a student that wouldn't it be great if I could come up with some ideas that ultimately would become a company and be successful around the world. It sounded like a crazy dream at the time. But my supervisor and I started a company and off we went. It's kind of created a passion in me since that time to can we take great Australian technology and make them globally successful? And, you know, that's kind of been the root of my career. But, yeah, so am I the ultimate entrepreneur? No, but I love bringing technology and business together. 
can we take Australian technology and take it global? Absolutely. But why do we always hear the negative? I'm not going to get the capital and I've got to go over to the west coast of USA. Oh, look, the number of Australians that have said, I've got a great idea and I'm going to go to Silicon Valley and get some funding and come back disheartened exceeds the number that would actually be successful if they stayed here. Why do we believe that? We haven't created a culture in Australia and a belief that we can be successful with technology. We're great at inventing it. We have an incredible number of patents. We have fantastic universities. But guess what? We license it off. Not every great technology, but so many great technologies that come out of Australia. Wi-Fi was something that we invented. We all live on that. Guess what? We sold it off. We license technologies off. We don't have the confidence that we can commercialise technology. And I guess that's kind of comes back to the root of my career, which is, I believe bringing business and technology together, we can do it in Australia. We are great at technology, but we haven't got the confidence in ourselves to convert that into a business. And that's really what I've been trying to do now for 30 odd years. Can you talk us through some of the key highlights of the career then? And maybe not every investment's a winner, I guess. You must have gone through some good times and some bad times. When you're talking about technology, you see a smiling there, Rob, so. <laughs> yeah, we don't talk about the failures, right? <laughs> you know the rule. The first company that I started, that's a perfect example of a success and a failure at the same time. We had world-leading technology and computer networking before there was the internet. Now, think about that in Australia, right? Yeah, right. We got an international standard for that technology. We had telcos around the world, so Deutsche Telekom, France Telekom, 9X, PacBell, all buying our technology. Now, this is back in the 80s. This is when you are at university still? This is the technology that my supervisor and I started at university. And then we turned that into a company. As I said, we had great technology success and great engagement with major telcos around the world. So you go, okay, great success. What happened? Well, partly what happened is we were funded by Telecom Australia, as it was then, now Telstra. And they said, we need a professional management. The university professor and his student really aren't professional managers, right? <laughs> well, guess what? Professional management came in and highly risk averse. Again, a classic Australian attribute that, oh, no, we can't be successful globally. What we need to do is license this off to better companies globally that can do this, Alcatel, Siemens, et cetera. And guess what? You know, we went from getting 60 and 70% gross margins down to 5% royalties. Kills a business overnight. You cannot grow a technology business off 5% royalties. Mm. And so effectively what we've done is licensed the business off. So that's a perfect example of a great success but a great failure at the same time. Can I stop you there for a second? Sure. If that board didn't come in, oh, it sounds like the old Apple story almost in, in some regards, yeah. and you had maybe some others who were more supportive, could it really have been successful? Absolutely. I mean, there was another company at the same time, a company called Stratacom in the US. And let me finish with the answer and then I'll tell you the start of the story. The answer was the company that my supervisor and I created ended up selling for $30 million. Not a bad outcome, right? Our competitor company that had worse technology didn't have an international standard, sold for $2 billion US dollars to Cisco several years later. That's the difference in the outcome. To be fair, that's a great lesson. It's a really good lesson because what you do is you say, okay, if we had the right ecosystem here in Australia, the kind of capital that supports technology risk, the mentors who understand that, yes, you can take a risk and say, this is the path to go. Don't license it off. This is what you can do to commercialise technology. It would have made an incredible difference to the outcome for that particular company. Again, don't get me wrong. Loved that company. Great success. Learned a lot. We're not going to make that mistake again. What's your definition of ecosystem? That word's bandied around everywhere. It's very simple in this case. And I lived, as you know, for 10 years in Silicon Valley, and that ecosystem works beautifully. It's a combination of people and capital. So the people component is, think about me as that young punk engineer who's got some cool technology. Unless I have a mentor and that mentor has a mentor, how do I know what to do? 
I didn't realize that we were making a stupid mistake by licensing the technology at the time. However, if you've got people that have been moved from my position as being a young entrepreneur that ultimately ends up being the leader in a company who ultimately ends up going on to mentor the next generation of companies, you have to have that ecosystem. And we've had, in, at least in Silicon Valley, you've had that experience for decades where you start out as a willing participant, then you become the leader, and then ultimately you become a mentor. So that's the people side of the ecosystem. The capital side of the ecosystem is also very important. You need risk capital. There are literally those people who become mentors. They've made enough money through their careers. They'll go, here, here's a million bucks. Go take this crazy idea and see if it works. That then goes to professional capital, venture capital, which ultimately then turns into your private equity and or a listing and or a sale. So those two things work together. And, of course, I did forget one piece of this, which is you need the technology. And we do have that in Australia. We have a great technology. So we really do have the technology. We have great technology. We invent it all the time. We lead in fintech here. We are ahead of US in fintech. Why are we hearing the story enough then? Because we don't believe in ourselves. The press doesn't write about it. We don't have enough success stories. And I think that's part of the problem is the ecosystem depends on the success stories. Once you get a few success stories, that encourages others to do the same thing. And we are getting a few success stories, Atlassian, Canva, Nearmap, all the wax stocks. So WiseTech, Appen, Altium, et cetera, all those zero New Zealanders. I won't steal that from them. (laughs) But you get the point, right? It's let's celebrate these companies and let's not just knock them down when they make one mistake. It is a risky business doing technology. The AFR loves to put something on the rear page of the AFR where somebody's made a mistake. Guess what? Risk is making mistakes. Move on. What was the next step? You had that first venture. You then obviously had some battle scars, as you said. Mm. Wish you had the ecosystems. Dust yourself off and move forward. What's the ethos? So, you know, the logical thing to do is if we haven't got the ecosystem here, where do I go where the ecosystem is? Uh (laughs) My wife reminds me of this once a week, but uh, (laughs) we up sticks and moved to Silicon Valley. So I think we were about 27 or 28 at the time. And we said, okay. I said, look, you know, I've got an opportunity in California to go work for a very rapidly growing company. And I went from being a founder and a senior member of the management team to being just one of the individual contributors in a very rapidly growing company in the US. The reason being is I wanted to learn how to commercialize technology. And this was a great place to do it. Are you a programmer by background? Are you the thinker or? Yeah, I'm more the thinker. So I kind of joke that I worked out I was better at talking about technology than actually doing it. I love technology. I used to tinker with hardware and software, but the practicality is there are much better engineers than me. I think if you look at where I engage with technology is I can understand it deeply, but then translate that into what is the commercial or the market application. If I can understand the technology and I can understand the commercial application and connect those two, that's really my sweet spot. Yeah, but then there's a third part, then it's about selling it. I guess the Americans might have taught you a bit about that or what's... The experience that I got, I went over there as a product manager. So that was my first step sideways in my career from being an engineer. So you go into product management, then you go into product marketing, then you go into general management, and that's eventually how you learn about sales. I traveled pretty much 52 weeks of the year when I was in the US working there, spent a good chunk of that on the road with salespeople and watching the selling. So everything from on the street, right there with the customer, eating burgers in cars while making it to the next customer (laughs) visit and setting the strategy for how the call was going to go, what I was going to say, that whole interaction and watching. And I used to call them meat-eating salespeople. They knew how to close a deal, right? And understanding that, but then also understanding everything behind that. What's the marketing that needs to set them up for success? What's the business model that needs to set all of that up for success? That was really what I learned out of the first five years in California. I think, Rob, you said 10 years. What was the next five years in store? Yeah, well, that's kind of where you come back to the theme of my career. So 
I got great experience at that company that I worked with for five years. But through that time, I'd made connections with venture capitalists in the US, I saw how startups were created. And I mean, that mecca for startups, of course. I'd kept contact with a number of the engineers that I'd worked with in my first company who were still in Perth. And I thought, wouldn't it be fantastic if I could take the Perth technology, bring it together with US sales and marketing people and US venture capital? So I spent six months within a US venture capital firm as an, what they call an entrepreneur in residence, which is basically you can think of grand thoughts for six months and build a business plan and go off and do it. So I did that. It was a fantastic experience. Really loved it. And learned a lot about VC, which we'll come back to later in my career. But really, I went in with an objective. How do I create an Australian company? But let's take the best of both worlds. Great Australian technology with US sales, marketing and capital. Started that company, grew it, and again, a great success and some failures. (laughs) You don't get away from failures in this game, I've got to tell you. We built a great product, had 22 carriers within the US who are all loving our product. We had a world-leading product again. They're all trialing it. Nobody was buying. (laughs) And I learned a second big lesson in my life, which was you have to understand the customer in every dimension. And I kind of tell this to people, unless you can see the color of the eyes of your customer, you don't understand them. So the story specifically was our customers loved the product. They were trialing it. They loved it, but they weren't buying. So I went to visit one of these potential customers, I should say. They said, oh, look, we're going to take you through the lab and show you how well your product's working. Fantastic. So, But to get to the lab, I had to walk through their warehouse. As I walked through the warehouse, it was stacked with boxes of our competitor's product. And I kind of stopped and said, isn't that the competitor's product? And you told us ours is better. What's going on? He said, oh, okay, that's the voice guys. Now, remember at the time, there were two services, voice services, your phone services, or your data services, your internet services, mm-hmm. right? We had a product that did both, which was really the breakthrough. Yeah. But of course, the way the customers were organized is they had the voice people and the data people, uh-uh. and they would buy them separately. So the voice people were buying lots of voice products, the data people were buying lots of data products, and we sold something that we couldn't sell to either. And unless we went to the CEO of the carrier and said, can you reorganize your company to fit buying our product? We were buggered, right? And I still believe it even in this day of internet. Unless you intimately understand your customer, uh, you miss something, right? Now, data can give you a lot of insight into your customers today, which does solve that I've got to see the color of their eyes problem. Mm. But I think it's really important to just start with the customer and fully understand how they use your product before you can get there. That's what I did in the second five years. You know what we did? We turned off all the voice features in our product and the next month we sold a million dollars worth of product. And three months later, we were acquired by a US company. So there you go. So (laughs) once you can see that lesson, it makes a big difference literally overnight. And you've used that ever since? Yeah, look, it's still with me. Spending time with customers, going on customer visits, part of the reason I travel so much today and spend time with customers, really want to understand how they use our product. Of course, now it's very different because we have so much analytics about how customers interact with our product that you can infer a lot from that. You can test as well. Let's try this idea. Let's try that idea. As a company, we've got to get better at that. Nearmap, we've got to get better at that. We've got great data. We haven't yet quite as got as much insider analytics out of it as we'd like. But but Rob, what about the old cliche, give the customer what they want? How does the customer even know what they want based on where you guys are coming from? Yeah, really good question. 80% of our customers never used aerial imagery before we existed. Okay, so what's near map then? Talk us through. Yeah, so near map. Everybody knows about satellite view. You put satellite view on your phone, you look at what things look like on the ground. Problem with satellite is it's a global coverage, but it's not great resolution. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, we sell to businesses, so our businesses use us to actually replace the site visit. If I'm going to put solar panels on a roof, I need to see up-to-date 
what that roof looks like, what the roof condition is, how many tiles there are, whether there's a skylight on the roof. So you need up-to-date, high-resolution imagery. That's what we do. So we don't use satellites, we don't use drones, we use planes. So we're basically in the industry of aerial imagery. Now, what makes us unique? We have invented our own camera system and processing software that gives us about a five times productivity advantage over any other system that's out there. And that's very significant because what it means is we're flying continually. We update Sydney, for example, six times a year. We update Perth, Canberra, et cetera, six times a year. So if you look at our imagery, it's only ever a couple of months out of date. And it's so high resolution, you can replace the site visit. So really compelling. So basically what we do is we compete with getting in your truck, driving on site, hopping on a ladder, climbing on the roof. That's what we compete with. So we have to educate our customers in a different way of doing their businesses. Is the technology from the military or is it without giving away too much? No. Uh, I'm thinking of the U2 plane flying past, you know, in the old days. What's... That's kind of the derivative or the source of the original industry, I guess. So the military did use this back in the 50s and a lot of patents around this technology go way back to the 50s right. for espionage type applications, of course. There's different solutions today. But actually the inventor of our technology, a guy called Stuart Nixon, has been in this industry for years. He's incredible and he had a company before Nearmap. And look, people have had cameras in planes for decades. They take a bunch of photos and then somebody would manually stitch all those photos together to create what you see as the photo map. Right, right okay. Yep. It's all semi-manually. So there's some software that helps you stitch it together. You don't want little lines where the photos are joined. It's a pretty difficult process. Stuart had two incredible insights. First insight is if he could create a camera system architecture that would allow us to collect an enormous amount of data, basically fly higher and faster than anybody else, and then take that enormous amount of data and have the software automatically stitch it together without human involvement, we could take what is a process of months down to days. Other people in our industry, if they went and did a survey of Sydney, it would take them six months to fly all of the data and stitch it all together and then deliver that on a disk to the customer. We do that in days. The time between the pilot taking off and the data being published on the web for our customers is about three to five days. So is this the 3D technology? This includes the 3D technology. So we started out with just what we would call ortho imagery or a straight down view. It's kind of what you see as your satellite view. What we've done since then is introduce an oblique view or a side on view so you can see the side of the house into the backyard, et cetera, et cetera. No, we're not spying on you. (laughs) (laughs) Not yet. Not yet. And then more recently, because of the complexity of our camera systems, we capture so much data that we can actually do this virtual reality reconstruction in 3D of the real world. And so it's incredible. If you go to our website and look at, say, the fly through of New York, you literally can fly through New York using what we have captured with our camera system. So that's our 3D technology. It's world leading. Nobody can capture the amount of data that we capture at the scale we capture and at the price point we capture it. How long have you got the advantage for? Look, I used to say about 18 months, two years, but our one competitor, which actually, like this ecosystem problem, was actually some of the early people from Nearmap actually started a competitive company. They keep slipping behind us, so they're falling further and further behind us. So look, we've probably got a two-year advantage. Having said that, you don't have a business as, as successful as ours without other people coming after you. And even if their gross margins aren't as good, they'll still try and find a way to replicate our business model. So what then makes that model so unique? This combination of two things. First of all is the productivity of the technology that enables the business model, which is basically software as a service or SaaS, right? And the analogy I always draw is remember the good old days where enterprises would buy their bespoke mainframes and load software onto it and do these large integration jobs and it would take years and most times it would go over budget and it never quite worked the right way. Nobody buys enterprise software anymore. They do SaaS. 
basically every business function has been converted to SaaS. We've done exactly the same in the aerial imagery industry. So where once upon a time you'd say, as I said before, you'd get somebody to go fly a survey for you, they'd take months and finally deliver you the data on the disk and say, here, deal with it. We've already got that done for you. It's already done. So it's a SaaS model. You say, hey, Nearmap, I would like to get access to all of Australia's data. We'll say, great, sign a subscription, and within hours you're connected to our service and you have 11 years of history of every city in Australia. You've got access to tools so you can measure things. You basically do your job in our environment. And as long as you can use a browser, you can use our product. So talk us back again. Obviously, you're building a business. You've got to get revenues. You've got to get Mm -hmm. clients. Mm -hmm. So what does a client look like? That's one of the great things about Nearmap, the diversity of our client set. If you're looking for a common theme amongst all of our clients, number one, they're businesses. So we don't sell to consumers. Consumers just want to say, I love you. But we sell to businesses. Basically, what we do is if you have an outside asset or you do a job outside and you have to take a car trip to get there, we will replace that for you or at least replace many of those. So, for example, at the one extreme, you're a sole trader solar panel installer and a customer or a prospect calls you up and says, I'd like to put some solar panels on my roof. The normal response would be, hang on, I'll come out there in three days, I'll deal with the dog barking and all that kind of stuff and go up and measure up and a few days later you'll give a quote back to the customer saying you put five kilowatts on your roof and we'll do it for you next week. Yep. With Nearmap, we dominate this segment here in Australia with basically a prospect calls up and they go, literally they're clicking on the Nearmap tools in real time and saying, yeah, we can fit a five kilowatt system on your roof. Done in seconds, what would have taken days. So that's one extreme of our clients. So small sole traders basically are doing landscaping jobs, paving jobs, roofing jobs, solar jobs, all of those kind of outdoor jobs. The quoting is basically done in minutes rather than in days. The other extreme, the largest enterprises in Australia and the US use us to monitor their outside assets, whether it's telcos, whether it's utilities, whether it's insurance companies underwriting their portfolio of residential properties. Again, determining the value and risk of a property can be done using our product rather than having to go on site. There's the police force, there's anti-terrorism, crime scenes, etc. Does it go that far as well? Absolutely. One of our great customers is actually the search and rescue in uh, Queensland Police. Is that right? Yeah. They say, look, when we're setting, if a person has gone missing, they can use, again, because our imagery is up to date, they can rely on it. And they say, we will know that a person, maybe a dementia patient has left. They're not going to go past here because there's a forest in the way or there's a freeway in the way, but they're more likely to go this way. And he and his team can plot out where the search areas go and then bring it back into our environment to say, here's all the places that we have searched today for this person. The other extreme, and this is one of those horrible examples, but police in in the US before a major event like a marathon or a major festival need to determine where terrorists and or snipers might place themselves. The way they used to do that was they'd literally send police people up and down buildings to look out of windows of multi-storey buildings, all be done using a line of sight in our application. So again, think of the productivity and the benefit of that to that particular industry. We are surprised every day with how people think of using our content. There's so many ways to use it. So everything from largest enterprises, government, police forces, all the way through to, again, as I said, sole traders. That's only half the deal, Rob. Mm -hmm. You say the, the full deal is to take this product offshore? Yes, and so we've started doing that. So we are very successful here in Australia. It's a great business. We have a very broad range of customers, as I said, very successful financially, and our customers love us. So as always, we said, hey, we've got this great product here in Australia. We're going to go overseas. Yep, it can't be that hard, right? <laughs> Let's go to America and we'll sell it over there and so it's a 10 times bigger market, so we'll make 10 times as much profit. Yep, yep. easy, done. All good on paper. Yeah, all good on paper. <laughs> to be fair, um, I was on the board at the time and signed off on the plan. And the plan was let's go over there and give it away for free and customers will come to us. 
Oh, it's not the plan. Give it away for free. Yeah, and that's how we started in Australia. We gave it away for free. Oh, did uh, you really? Yeah, we gave it away for free for actually three years while we're trying to work out the business model, by the way. We couldn't work out how to make money out of this. What we worked out is actually that it was businesses using it and they were getting value out of the service, so we put up a paywall. And that's really how the business model got created. We thought, okay, let's just do the same in the US. We'll go over there, we'll give it away for free for a year, and that's fine, no problem. And after a year, we'll have all these people updated their businesses based on uh, what we do, put up the paywall, and life will be good. The US is very different from Australia. It's much larger market. It's a much more competitive market. I think this is where a lot of Australians miss the opportunity when they go to the US. They kind of underestimate how complex and how large that market is. It moves very quickly. It's a very fast market. There are lots of solutions in that market for alternatives. In Australia, we don't have, for example, a tool to do landscaping, whereas over there, there was somebody who had a landscaping tool. Who knew? Insurance market there is very different. So unless you're in the market, again, remember, go see the colour of the eyes of the customer until you actually talk to the insurance carrier and realise, hang on, their industry is structured different to ours here in Australia. That means we have to sell differently. We've got to sell them a different proposition in a different way. So we learned a lot out of that first year. Nobody was using our product, even though it was free and it was fantastic. Nobody even knew about us. So that's actually when I joined in the CEO role. So I'd been on the board of Neomat for many years. So you come from the board into the CEO role? Yep. The board asked me, hey, Rob, you've got experience in taking other companies to the US before. You've got a bunch of battle scars. Can you help us with this, right? I've got to admit, it's been harder than I thought. It is a large, complex market. But the first things we did was said, okay, let's put a professional sales team in place. I'm comfortable with that. I know that. I understand that. Let's focus. Yes, we can deal with everything from solar panel installers to landscapers to everybody else. Let's just focus on three industries and let's really narrow down our marketing, our sales message. Let's really narrow it down. That started to build traction. So we got traction in the construction industry, in local government and in the solar industry. What happened was really surprising was insurance data providers started coming to us. We hadn't expected that. The insurance industry in the US is structured very different to Australia. Mm. And they suddenly realized the benefit of what we had. And in fact, that segment has grown incredibly for us. In hindsight, is it best to take this great product and idea that you have and go straight across to the US or should you go to a smaller market first, similar to Australia and test it? Or what is the right way to go about growing your business? Do I be bold and take that risk and off to the States I go? Or do I go trial at New Zealand first or do I go... Singapore, what's the game here? It's situational. It's got to be situational. It depends on the company. In our particular case, the US made sense for us. It is a market that is in many ways similar to Australia, political structures, Trump aside, uh, but political structure, business structure, et cetera, et cetera. All of those things, it's similar enough. Whereas if you go to Asia, different political environments, et cetera, Europe, you've got language differences. The US is a good market. If we did this again, I'd do it slightly differently. Mm -hmm. The New York... MSA or Metropolitan Statistical Area. So that's kind of all the built-up areas associated around Manhattan Island. So going across to New Jersey. All the boroughs. All the boroughs and so on. That has a GDP larger than Australia. Think about that, right? So what we do is we fly planes to capture content about built-up areas. So we should have kind of said, okay, New York or LA or something like that. Let's just go survey the hell out of one of those two locations. Let's sell the hell out of one of those two locations and establish a beachhead. One of the terminologies we use internally is Normandy. Basically, the Normandy invasion, if you want to take over Europe, you don't take it over all at once, land a beach. Once you've got a beachhead, then you grow from there. Whether it's by geography or by industry, be hyper-focused on this is the geography I'm going after within the US, this is the customer type I'm going after, and this is even the job function of the person I'm going after. Right down to that level, back to the colour of the eyes again, right? I know that project estimators in this particular industry will use our product in this particular way. Tune your marketing, tune your sales, tune your product to that. Once you're in, then you broaden. 
Are you happy with the way the business is going? Oh, look, I love this business. It is a fantastic business. We are perfectly positioned to be the first global aerial imagery business anywhere. This has been an industry that's highly fragmented, very much a cottage industry, no big players. There's, look, there's one reasonable size player in the US, but even their market share in the US is about 7%. Nobody has worked out a way to create a globally scalable business model and capture model, survey capture model that we do. Nobody's worked that out yet. And so because we've got a SaaS model, our business has much less friction to create than one where you say, I'm waiting for a customer to tell me that they need Sydney surveyed. We don't do that. We surveyed it anyway. We surveyed it six times this year, you know, in the last 12 months. So we've got a much faster growth business model than anything else that's out there. We believe based on the people we've got, the product we've got, the capital resources we've got, we're perfectly positioned to be the first global imagery company and from Australia. So which markets do you go into next? We are already in New Zealand. Canada's obviously a logical extension. We can run a lot of the infrastructure and the business operations out of the US. The next leap for us will be a more challenging one where we head, obviously, either to Europe or to Asia. So that's another continental jump. I think we'll apply the principles of Normandy into those markets. So not try and capture all of Europe all at once. Let's go hyper-targeted into a particular area, get that closed in our favour, and then uh, grow from there. Stand back a little bit. You came in from a board role Mm. to become a CEO. You've inherited a business, as you said, and I think you said earlier, you know, culture is quite hard to change. So how did you make your stamp? Look, this is probably the biggest lesson I've learned out of a role at Nearmap. I've always started a company. See, this is the mm. first time I've actually stepped into a role in an existing company. And I've looked at turnaround CEOs, and this wasn't a turnaround situation. This was a, a get the US working. But when I've looked at turnaround CEOs, I go, what do those people do? You know, they're horrible. They go in and they basically fire the whole exec team day, you know, within the first six months and bring in their own team. Yeah, paid a lot of money for it too. <laughs> yeah, right. There's a reason why you need to change. And so if you're bringing in a CEO to make a change, and in this particular case it was to grow the US faster, yep. then something has to change in the organisation and it starts at the top. Yep. So in that sense it was really a cultural change that we were needing to drive but also a skill set change. Can I ask you something? Yeah. It starts at the top. Is the top the chief exec in your mind or is the board? Oh, that's a really good question. I probably have a different relationship with my board than most CEOs would because, remember, I was on the boards. And so Ross Norgard, Cliff and myself were the board at the time. We work very well together. We know each other. And Ross and I go back decades rather than even years. Uh, Cliff and I go back a long way as well. The chairman, Peter James, I actually interviewed him and brought him in. So it's a board that I am very close to. And the relationship I have with the board is 100% transparency. So you can come into the Nearmap any day you like, go walk the floor, talk to whomever you like, whatever you need to know about the business. Transparency is key. And look, this is core to my core values is uh, tell it. If there's something going wrong, let's tell it so we can fix it. That's core. And if the board doesn't know what's going on in the business, it makes my job more difficult, believe it or not. If they know what's going on in the business, they can challenge me and say, hey, Rob, this isn't working. What are we doing about it? Okay, let's get together and solve this problem together. So back to your question, where does culture come from? At the end of the day, I say it comes from the CEO, but it needs to be supported by the board. Now, if the board and the CEO don't see eye to eye on culture, then that's a recipe for disaster because you know it's going to end up in the chairman and the CEO having a fight and who loses the CEO. Yeah. 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 So you've got to establish culture. I think the CEO, because they're present in the office, other than when they're traveling, the CEO really has to represent the culture, has to live the culture, has to be the culture. And then what you do is you've got to then build that into the exec team. Okay. Hiring based on culture into the exec team, they've got to be high performers, they've got to be able to do their job, they've got to be able to scale. But bringing that right culture together, then once you've got that at the exec team, then it can move through the organization. Culture is a challenge. It's something that is living. It is not something 
put some stamps on the wall and everybody goes, yep, I got it, that's culture. That's not culture. I mean, even the word culture, you culture things in the backyard, right? Culture is a living thing and you have to keep reinforcing it through action, through words. I started today's stand-up with basically here's our culture and here's what it means to me and here's a perfect example of where it was used in our company. At least you admitted you've had plenty of successes and plenty of failures. So people aren't going to put it past you or wouldn't have thought too easy. What do you look for when you start hiring that calibre team that you need to grow this business? When I joined in this role and started to look at the calibre of people, first thing you have to recognise is that people that start companies aren't necessarily people that are very good at being your exec team. Mm -hmm. And I've even kind of stretched myself beyond my own boundaries because I'm more of a startup guy, to be honest. But having said that, what I was looking for were a combination of capabilities in the members of the exec team. They needed to have some battle scars, so it means they've been around for a while. They needed to have worked in a big organisation so that they understand where we're going, but they also needed to have some startup stripes. So the combination of startup skills, the ability to kind of literally roll up the sleeves and say, you know what, if I have to go balance the books this week, I'm going to balance the books this week if you're the CFO. Yep. If I'm the marketing guy and I actually have to go run an email campaign, I can run an email campaign. But at the same time, you can step back and say, I know what it's like to run an email campaign in a company the size of Microsoft. And so that's our CMO. Our CMO has done both of that. He's been a CEO of a startup, or not at the same time, but also has been a senior member of marketing in Microsoft. The pace that you're working at, is it hard sometimes to transcend between operational and strategic? It is, although getting better. I wind the clock back 12 months, very operational. So I was in the numbers, I was in the deals, I was looking at the product roadmap, I was in across all of those things. Back to the core values about trust. So Talent says, hey, each of the members of the team, you own what you're doing. You got it. I trust you. Theoretically, I don't even need to know anymore. Now, theoretically, right? <laughs> of course, I'm going to want to know. But I trust you to get it done. Now, something will go wrong. Things go wrong. We might be looking at missing a number for the month. We might be late for a delivery of a new product capability. Well, guess what? You've got to tell it. Because what happens then, as soon as you tell it, the team can come together and say, okay, we're going to be late on this feature. That's going to impact that deal. How do we fix this? Oh, we better go manage the customer. But if you don't tell it, that's where it all falls apart. So integrity is key and trust is key. So for me, back to your question about getting out of the operations. Mm. Did someone tell you? To get out of the operations? Yeah, yeah my chairman. <laughs> Literally 12 months ago, the chairman said, Rob, time to get on the business rather than in it. Yeah. I'm a startup guy, right? I can do all of these things. I can be an engineer. I can be a marketing guy. I can, do, you know, I can do all of that stuff. And it's fun. Don't get me wrong. But no, you've got to get out of it. He said, Rob, time to get on the business, not in the business. But first part of that was laying the groundwork with the right exec team. Yeah. Actually, the challenge now is because we're growing so rapidly is doing the same for the exec team. I need to get them out of doing it into more building their teams, building the capabilities so that they can trust their teams to go do the jobs that need to get done. How do you deal with pressure, Rob? Look, I actually love pressure, by the way, but <laughs> funny, you talk to a number of people about being a CEO and they look at you and say, oh, we'd never have your job, right? Because it is a crazy job. Mm. You've probably heard this before. It's the loneliest job because at the board, you've got peers. The exec team have all got peers. Everybody else has got peers. This is the one place in the company where you don't have a peer. It's a crazy job because you're kind of dealing with a lot of context switch all the time. This is going on over here. This is going on over here. So many different stakeholders. Everybody's got an opinion, whether it's the staff, whether it's customers, whether it's investors, everybody's got an opinion. And so you could easily be overwhelmed by that. And in some sense, I like all of that input. What's important though, is you do need the pressure relief. You absolutely need the pressure relief. I think I've got two pressure reliefs in my life. So one of them is I do now, I think, I have to check with my wife, I do have a good work-life balance. So I get to the weekend, shut the laptop, 
If something urgent happens, I'm there. Don't worry. But let's close the laptop. Let's go out for a hike on the weekend. So we'll go hike, go to coffee, whatever it is. So that work-life balance is critical. The other one, which is, and I learned this very, very early, it was still while I was at university, is I could spend two days trying to solve a problem for that particular computer networking company. I'd spend two days on it. Wouldn't get anywhere. I'd literally go out for a run, 10 minutes into the run, I'd go, bang, that's it. I got it. That's the answer. You need to allow time for your subconscious mind. You need to take all the inputs. But for me personally, it's that ability to kind of have the time on my own. Running for me is meditation. I run at the end of the day because the pressure builds through the day. There's so many inputs through the day. So what time's the average run? Look, you know, the average runs around six o'clock in the evening. So you kind of get to the end of the day, you go, okay, I'm, I'm done. And basically I live close enough to work that I can run home. That's the pressure relief. That's the time where all the problems get solved and it turns me back into a human being before I get home. Let's stand back even further. You're the technology guru. You're the entrepreneur. You've got the battle scars. You lived offshore. How hard is it for the next proper technology people coming in to take the same dream offshore with the government and the mentality of the Australian public? I will answer the second part of your question a little later. But first of all, how hard is it for this generation of tech entrepreneurs to do what we're trying to do here. And I actually think it's easier today. Fundamentally, a lot of businesses are like ours, which are SaaS businesses that by nature are automatically global. So the ability to build a global business, Atlassian is a perfect example. That gets put out all day long, Atlassian, Atlassian, Atlassian. Mm -hmm. Well, there's, there's got to be others we've got to start hearing more about. We've got to hear more about it. And so this is where I think we are now cutting ourselves short in Australia. I fundamentally believe, and I did spend a bit of my career as a venture capitalist, and I did a retrospective on how successful our various investments were. I believe there are two things that make a great technology company. Number one, the depth of the intellectual property, and number two, the capability of the management team. I don't care how big the market is. I don't care about competitors. I don't care about all those other factors that go into a business plan. When you're starting a company, it's the depth of intellectual property and the capability of the management team. Let me talk about both of those. If you come up with yet another app, it's not different. And there's so many young entrepreneurs today that's chasing yet another app. I've got an app for that. I've got an app for a radio replacement. I've got an app for, you know, microphone replacements. I've got an app for whatever it is, right? Look around at anything you find and there's an app for that. Mm. Doesn't create great businesses. Great businesses fundamentally are founded on great technology or some great insight about human behavior. Yeah. Google, perfect example. They had a deep, deep algorithm for search. And it basically destroyed Yahoo. Yahoo had a structure for categorizing content. Yeah. Look at the difference. Where is Yahoo today versus where is Google? It's a perfect example. The deeper the IP, the deeper the tech, the more moat you create and more defense you have around your business. Now, I have one other guarantee for you. When you start a business, I guarantee one thing will happen. Within 12 months, you'll have one fundamental assumption about your business wrong. You will never be able to be prescient about the future. So that's why you need the second piece, which is a great management team. Now, this is really hard for startups. You need to be stubborn enough to persist, but smart enough to change when you have to. And that's a really hard combination to find in one person. So having a two or three people in a team to go, let's keep going, let's keep going, let's keep going. Oh, hang on, we're actually going the wrong path here. It's time to, for us to change direction. Neomap's a perfect example. We spent three years going down a path with great technology, lots of customers using us, not making any money. And it was only when the insight from the second CEO said, hang on a second, we've got to put up a paywall and actually have our commercial customers pay for this service, did we really start to take off. Is that because people then value your service? Yeah, absolutely. If I get it for free, do I value it? That's the only thing. That's the point, right? When it's for free, you don't value it. But when you realize that this 
service had actually been integrated into their workflows. So they literally had less cars on the road. They literally had less people going on site, less risk of people climbing ladders. Mm. And suddenly you go, hang on a second, that service isn't available unless I pay for it. They suddenly realize the value. Yeah. Of course, that's what our salespeople have to do every day now in our marketing is educating our prospects on where the ROI is for them in replacing those physical site visits with the virtual site visit. So that executive team, what you don't want is sycophants then, do you? Oh, absolutely not. In the same way as I expect the board to challenge me, I expect the exec team to bring different perspectives and challenge. Three times a year, we get together for a week or two and review our strategy, where we're going, et cetera. So three times a year, we do that. So we fly, we've got execs, two execs in the US, we fly them into Sydney, or our team from Sydney flies to the US. And we challenge each other. And basically, we have four principles we put up at the start of, of those meetings, which is healthy disagreement is encouraged. So challenge each other, push, challenge. But one of those other four principles is once we make an agreement, it is lock solid and we hold each other accountable for it. So if we walk out of there with an agreement, you can't go back to your teams and say, oh, by the way, actually I'll twist the agreement a little bit to make my team feel happy. So that's kind of the dynamic that it will happen there. That's part A. What about part B? Where's the support by institutions, the dialogue by government? We hear the world of innovation over and over. Yeah. A lot of talk. A lot of talk, right? And my biggest frustration, as I said, I had a period probably about five or six years in my career where I was running a small venture capital firm, actually in Perth. And government, if I have one piece of advice for government, get out of the way for technology. Get out of the way. No, it's as simple as that. Should we expect a government department? They do great things, don't get me wrong, but should we expect them to understand a complex environment like technology and innovation and startups? Of course not. The biggest frustration I had is, okay, we had this venture capital fund. We would invest in startups. We'd get some government funding, just about to get the government funding, change of government. They change policy. The funding would go away. Six months later, they'd come back with a new campaign or new budget initiative, pretty similar, rebranded because it was the Liberal Party versus the Labor Party yeah. or vice versa. I don't care which party you're talking about. Yep. There's no bipartisan support. There's no long-term support from government. If you're going to put a campaign or a program in place, it's got to stay there through all government. You cannot change it every time there's a government or a change of minister. It's ridiculous. We had a company that was doing $20 million a year in revenue. I'm not going to blame either side, but at the time I woke up one morning and said, oh, we're going to change that policy. Took the $20 million business to zero overnight. Yep, the incentives got taken away. So it was a business that relied on government incentives. The incentives went away and screwed the business literally overnight. Government, get out of the way. Free enterprise works. Look at America. Where are the government incentives for startups in America? They don't have them. It's back to the ecosystem. Smart capital that understands all the risk elements and the risk stages. Smart entrepreneurs who go all the way through from being willing participant to leader to being a mentor. Yep. And a great technology engine. We've got the great technology engine. Government, get out of the way. If there's anything you can do, highlight and companies like Nearmap, they should be saying, this is fantastic. Look what they've done. We didn't do it with any government incentives. Talk us through the ecosystem a little bit more because... If I am starting up a business, am I going to stick around? I've heard your story. It's great. Mm -hmm. It's going to be hard to get this thing. I'm going to hit by tax. Aren't I better to go to Singapore? In fact, they're going to incentivize me, you know, first year before my first million dollars, I get a very reduced tax rate. Is there actually a technology hub in Australia? Look, where are we at on that? Now, is it Redfern or is it, is it in the city or is it down the road where we're based here at the moment? Whereabouts is it? There's a couple of questions inside your question. Yeah. There. So the technology hub thing, you don't, again, need to force that. It happens quite naturally. When I lived in California, the three largest computer networking companies all were within a kilometre of each other. There was no government incentive or hub or anything. It just made sense that that was the place that they would put their buildings and literally I would do a run at lunchtime, back lunchtime back then, but I'd run from our offices 
to our competitor's office, which is about a mile down the road, to the other competitor's office, which is about a mile down the road, and then back to my office. Remind me how competitive I wanted to be. I would beat these guys, right? <laughs> but anyway, but the point being is these things form naturally. You don't have to force it. So the hub, I don't think, is the key piece. But back to your core question, which is I'm a technology entrepreneur and I want to be successful. Yeah. You can be successful from Australia. There are companies that have done it. It's just as hard anywhere else. And if you're relying on incentives, your business model doesn't work. I'll say it again. If you're relying on incentives, your business model doesn't work. That $20 million loss that we had, it's a perfect example of that. And I think as Australians, if you've got great core technology, you've got to be doing something for Australia and take the risk and do it here. It's our responsibility as Australians. This is a great country. Agreed. This is a great country. Yes, mining does great for us. Yes, construction does great for us. But if we're going to create a technology industry, you have to invest in our country and that means do it here and there's no reason why you can't. So where's the dialogue there? Oh, look, I don't think there is a dialogue around that, to be honest. I think there's a responsibility, and I'll take a blame for this as well, as CEOs of WiseTech, Atlassian, Altium, Nearmap, et cetera. There's no get-together, no consortium or...? No, and I'll take as much responsibility as the rest. We're all so goddamn busy. We're all flying around the world because we're all running global companies. My hope out of all of this is that each of us, as we progress in our careers and pass on our companies to the next generation of leadership, that we do create that next level of mentoring. I think the other piece of it also is that there has to be, and this is the hardest part of it, is a technology coming together. And what I mean by that is the experience that I have in aerial imagery, how much does that relate to logistics? How much does that relate yeah. to Atlassian and what they do? But if you've got four or five companies in the mapping space, that's when you start to feed off each other, both in a competitive way, you all drive yourself higher, but you're also learning and you're crossing skills from one company to the next and that creates the next generation. So that's probably the other piece that's hard to create. Don't have the answer for it, but something a little further in my career I'll work on. A couple of last questions. How often are you away from home? It depends. There was a period in the first half of calendar 18 where I spent half of the time on the road, basically two weeks in the US, two weeks in Australia. Uh, it was important at that time as we're going through some transitions in the US. Now it's down to probably two weeks in the US every two months. I think it's an important part of our business. All the parts of our business are important. The faster we grow in the US the faster the near grows overall. Okay. Now, what do I mean by that? Again, just take the basic US is 10 to 15 times larger than Australia. Australia, a very successful business. If you get that same economic engine working in the US, the free cash that comes out of that business then funds so much product expansion, so much global expansion. So getting that business model working in the US to the same level of success as Australia, that really drives the overall growth for our company. Mentors, Rob, you mentioned you mentioned that heading a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Who's been the mentors to you? Look, there's some people that have really shaped me very early. I mentioned my family, but particularly my father. I can't remember whether I was 10 or 12, about that age. Dad had a farm we used to work on the weekend. Dad asked me, how much money have you got in the bank? And I can't remember how much it was. Let's say it's 100 bucks. And he said, well, for 100 bucks, Rob, you could buy a cow. Okay. So you can leave it in the bank and you can earn interest, or you could buy a cow. So I bought a cow. And from that, bred a calf. So I've got two cows now. And within about a few years, guess what? I had a herd right? and I sold that herd and put the deposit down on the house. Teaches you something from day one. Teaches you risk, teaches you the value of investing. It teaches you that if you tend something, you can grow it. And it's very simple. So that house then turned into another house and away you go. So then you've got that piece. So dad, for me, shaped that passion for business, as did one of my brothers for my 21st birthday, gave me a book called The Principles of Corporate Finance. Yeah. 21 year old, sorry. 21, yeah, yeah, my brother. You know, so here I am, an engineer, and my brother gives me a book on principles of corporate finance. I go, what the hell are you doing? I read the book cover to cover, loved it. So those kinds of things influenced me very early. Then my university supervisor, very smart technically, 
but also entrepreneurial. He had that same passion I have, which is great, create a great Australian business. So John Hullett, great respect to him. He's fantastic. He was that mentor that got me started. Today, I look actually to our chairman. He's so level-headed, so broad in his thinking. I think he's a great guide for me at the moment. But I also, in parallel, use, I've got an executive coach. Well, you have for, a coach? Oh, absolutely. Look, I'm always looking for input. You've got to be learning every day. And there are people that have got different views on life. And my executive coach is fantastic. He's quite different to me. You know, I'm an engineer by training. Yeah. He's a lawyer, but also very much in touch with the human side. I know as I'm transitioning more into you know, thinking about the people and growing the people part of our organization, that I need somebody who's pulling me that way. All of those inputs are really important in creating, continuing to learn, but also shaping who I am today. How much longer are you going to stay in the role, Rob? I uh, love this company, love this job. It's challenging in that respect of, as you can tell, I'm looking here to build a global company to prove that Australia can create a great technology company that's globally successful. At some point, I'll realize my limits. Running a 10,000-person organization is very different to running a 200-person organization. So at some point when I realize I'm at my limits, it'll be time for me to hand on to the next generation. Rob, if you look back at that young guy with his first calf to today, <laughs> that dream hasn't changed much. You've been always wanting to build no matter what. What advice would you give that young bloke? Yeah, I actually thought about this a little bit. It was kind of interesting. My first reaction was no regrets. I mean, you kind of look back on your life and you say, yeah, I made a bunch of mistakes, but I learned a lot from every one of those mistakes. Makes you move forward, try again. Every time you hit the wall, I'm like, okay, bang, I shouldn't have gone that way. Let's go the other way, right? So do I have any regret about anything that I've done? No, that's kind of important. If there was one piece of advice that I might have given young Rob would have been that very first company, which was don't license the technology. Stick with what you believe in. Stick with selling it. If we'd kept selling our product, which we had started to do rather than to license it off, it'd be a very different outcome for Australia. Very different outcome. But again, no regrets. I learned a lot from that. Rob, as you walk out of here today, what are you going to do about getting that dream alive in regards to the others coming together to help Australia? I think now there is a responsibility. I have reached out to a couple of those execs. I think it's my responsibility to kind of carve time out to do that. We're also busy, but unless somebody steps up and initiates it. So, Greg, thank you. You've given me a mission. <laughs> Yet another one. We're follow up on it. <laughs> okay, you can check in with me in a year's time and see how far I've progressed. You're on. Rob, thanks for sharing everything today. It's been a fantastic conversation. Good. Thanks, Greg. You've been listening to No Limitations. No Limitations.